I'm Ron Nearing, and welcome to Learn Right, the school board campaign training podcast from the Leadership Institute. For this episode of the podcast, we bring you a special program. The Leadership Institute recently held a future candidate school for conservatives interested in running for office at some point in the future here at our offices in Arlington, Virginia. The Political Training Division of Leadership Institute holds this program several times a year, and you can sign up to attend in person at leadershipinstitute.org training. During this most recent Future Candidate School, we conducted a one-hour panel discussion answering students' questions about what is involved with running for office and being an elected official. The panel includes Matt Lang, a retired U.S. Navy reservist who was a candidate for the Virginia House of Delegates in the 2021 election, Matthew Hurt, the Director of Graduate Programs at Leadership Institute, Leadership Institute Senior Vice President Stephen Sutton, New York political strategist Bill Falk, and myself. We spent one hour taking questions from the students in attendance about what's involved with running for office, designing an effective campaign and implementing it, and our personal experiences in various roles in the campaign process. Let's join the program. And the the most successful first-time candidates, those who haven't run before, usually have something to bring to the table. Either they have an ability to raise money, they're community leaders, they're not just somebody who steps up on a Tuesday and says, you know what, I'm running for town council. They usually have some some viability already built in. And and they know that, and oftentimes the party leaders will seek them out. You know, we, we know this person's registered Republican or Democrat, and he's involved in the, the Chamber of Commerce, he's a school board president or something like that. He'd be a good candidate, we'll seek him out. We, we believe he can raise money, he has friends. It's very hard to just be, you know, to say you want to run and then the party select you and then fund you. It's very, very rare that it happens. I know when I ran for office, you know, I was looked at as a sacrificial lamb. Okay, this guy's going to lose. I got a grand total of $500 from the county party. Um, I would call feel good money. It was too much. It was too much. Which <laughs> I only received a week before election day uh, because I got endorsed by the big local newspaper. Yeah, that's because someone needed your vote for something later. So they decided you did a great job for knocking on doors for the last six months. So here's five hundred dollars. You know, I mean, it's it's it's, it's humbling. Curious if you have one back there. My question is for Mr. Nearing. I was wondering, given your experiences in and leadership of Republican politics in the state of California, what, in your view, is the viability of statewide Republican candidates in both the short and long term in California? Well, thank you for the easy question. Um, <laughs> so first, in, even in the most liberal states, it is, it is a common misconception to believe that the entire state is evenly distributed between R's and D's, right? So Bill is from New York. I live in, I'm originally from New York. Uh, I live in California. Bill lives in New York. And Bill has lots of Republican elected officials. So do I, because we live in areas of the state which tend to be more Republican. So first, it's a mistake to assume that it's like North Korea, where 100% of all elected officers are held by one party. It tends to follow the pattern that in urban areas there tend to be more Democrats and in rural areas there tend to be more Republicans. That being said, statewide, I did an analysis of California statewide elections going back to the 1970s and found that the most winnable office in the state in, in the state of California for Republicans is governor. Now, why is that? 
Uh, and I want for the answer, I want to recommend reading chapter four of Karl Rove's book called Courage and Consequence. In chapter four, called the Rovian Campaign, he walks through a number of principles of how he would run campaigns. And one of those principles is the higher the office, the more likely voters are to see the candidates for who they truly are. Because if you run for governor, you get so much media attention that you can perform better than the party. If you run for one of these down ticket offices, like lieutenant governor, secretary of state, nobody knows who they are. And so therefore they become party preference votes. And until the national brand changes, those are gonna be nearly impossible for a Republican in California to win. And similarly, for a Democrat in Texas to win because nobody knows who these offices are. Political people know who they are, but normal people, and I'll just tell a really quick story. I was campaigning in Solvang when I ran for Lieutenant Governor 2014. Uh, and if you go to Solvang, you know you have to go to Pea Soup Anderson's. Yeah, that's where you have to go. That's the big restaurant everybody knows. So I'm sitting at the counter uh, and I'm wearing my Republican uniform, meaning a suit and tie. Uh, and the, the server comes up to me and says, oh, strangely dressed man, what brings you to Solvang? I mean, she didn't say the first part. Uh, and I said, she said, what, what brings you here? I said, well, I'm the Republican nominee for Lieutenant Governor. She said, oh, does that involve like the military or the police or something? She saw the word Lieutenant, right? And so it reminded me, nobody knows who the Lieutenant Governor is. Nobody knows what the Lieutenant Governor is. Uh, and, uh, you know, and so consequently, it, it just degenerates into a party preference vote. You just have to, political people have a harder time seeing this, but normal people who are not political, you look at the ballot, you see that name, you see that name, you don't recognize either one of them, what do you look to? The party affiliation. Oh, well that's the D, I'm the D, and so therefore that person wins. So until the national party brand changes in a way that is more beneficial in, in a state like California or New York, uh, I think it's an uphill battle for down ticket candidates. And the most elect, the most winnable office for the opposition party will remain governor for the reason I mentioned. And you see, see that in Maryland, Massachusetts, mm -hmm. very blue states with Republican governors. Yeah, yeah, good point. Bill, you've got a question? I do. Uh, I think it was you, Brian, this morning, you are talking about uh, early money scaring off the possible opponents and things like that. I, I think, um, I think, uh, George mentioned that, but go ahead. But you guys may know. Okay. Uh, we've got two people in our race that their early money is, their 100000 each of them, is self-funded. Now, between them, they've raised $1.25 other than that. So, I mean, it didn't frighten me, but do you think that self-funded money would, have, would give that same type of fear to potential candidates? Yep. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't it doesn't matter where it, it's, it's all green it's still going to buy ads it's still going to buy infrastructure it's still it, it, it still has the uh, the effect of deterrence now it doesn't mean it's uniformly deterring but uh, but sure someone who's loaned his campaign a hundred thousand could probably loan a, another hundred and another hundred and another hundred so so yeah that's that will scare off some people so sure. I mean, the, the usual rule is announce early and raise money. You defeat your opponent before they ever announce because they never announce. But people are making that calculus. The idea that you're going to, I'll file on the deadline, the last day, and I'll sneak up on everybody. And nobody else will have filed and I'll just win. Well, there's six other guys doing the same thing. There's no busier day down at the, at the county clerk's office 
than the day of the filing deadline when everyone's rushing in to be that secret candidate. So that, you don't want that to be you. Announce early, start getting endorsements, commitments for uh, donations. You want other candidates to hear when they call Mr. Smith, uh, oh, I wish I had known you were running, but I'm already supporting Bill. He asked me three months ago. That's what you want them to hear. That's a deterrent. I wish I had known you were running. I, you know, I would have stayed neutral or maybe endorsed you, but I've already committed to Bill because he asked me first. I didn't know you were going to run. So it shouldn't be a secret. Matt, you're talking about fundraising from a, a candidate perspective in a, in a tough race. What, what was your motivation? And, and when you saw the dollars come in, how did you how did to prospective donors, family, friends, and others? And also, to the extent that you can speak to it, Talk about the, the financial relationship between the statewide campaigns, uh, in this instance, uh, Governor-elect Youngkin, uh, who supported many House of Delegates candidates like you in the 2021 cycle. Going into my uh, campaign, I didn't make any assumptions. I didn't, I didn't expect the party to open up the bags and start passing out cash. I mean, I'm a realist. I know, you know I didn't have a background in politics, and uh, I knew I'd have to make my, uh, you know, make my way on my own. So that's why we, you know, in the beginning we hired, a, you know, I made my phone calls to my friends and family until they all bled out. I, you know, hired a, fund, a uh, fundraising consultant and you know, got me started doing that and that was successful. But then at the same time, you know, you started reaching out, not just to individuals. You know, I am proud to say that most of my contributions came from individuals within the district or within the state. But at the same time, you start finding out there are different places you can look for for resources. Now, you know, politics, in my opinion now, is an investment. You go for your most likely races. Now you should. So you see in different packs or whatnot, there'd be different contributions to different candidates, but there are more competitive areas or maybe they have a, you know, a better advantage than you do. At the same time, it shouldn't dissuade you from trying and making your case to do so. I mean, I, living in a very blue and, uh, district, I knew it was going to be an uphill battle the entire way, but you do your best to sell yourself. You know, you not sell, but just be yourself. You actually believe in what you're talking about and what you're promoting. My thing in my area was, you know, crime was rising. I'm a former cop. I got a lot of friends that are still in the police. That was my thing. That's what I was talking about. You know, I've retired out of the Navy Reserve last winter as well. So that was my thing it was also, so, you know, support of the military, you know, helping transitioning veterans get into, uh, you know, apprenticeship programs and things like that. Things that doesn't matter what party you are, everyone should want, right? Education, you know, obviously Virginia, that was a huge issue last year. And I think a lot of candidates were talking about that before it became a huge issue, you know? Before McCullough stepped on his tail last year, made a statement saying we shouldn't listen to parents, all the candidates, at least the ones I know in Northern Virginia, were already talking about school choice and certain subjects being taught in schools. So, they, you know, these were things that you believe in and you should still champion. You know, getting back to the fundraising, we talked about the different places, like the PBA, the uh, Virginia Policeman Benevolent Association. They did endorse me and they donated graciously to my campaign. I don't think they did the same amount of money to everybody, but I think it's how you presented yourself to the panel to answer the questions, your background, and how what you support. Um, Governor-elect Youngkin's campaign as well. Fantastic support. To be honest with you, huge surprise to me whenever I reached out to his uh, committee asking for a donation, the amount of money they gave me. So that was a huge, you know, especially very early in the campaign. That was, that was probably late spring. That was probably the largest donation I'd had up to that point. So that was a huge confidence booster to me that, wow, you know, at the time, the future governor, the hopefully future governor, see, you know, obviously sees qualities in me. He gave the same amount of money to other candidates as well, some less, some more, depending on where they were. But it was a huge success. Um, like I said, I can talk about fundraising all day. Like I said, 
it is important. I announced early. I got there January of last year before anybody else put themselves out there. And I started making phone calls the first day. And like I said, if I had a, in the beginning, my campaign consultant was talking about how many phone calls you make today. Oh, I don't know who to call. Here, I'll tell you who to call here. And you get you started. It becomes second nature. And I, you hate to say that money is that important in politics, but it's not buying votes like some people say. It's getting your message out there. It's all communication. Updating your website. You know, maybe a radio spot, which I was lucky. Actually, someone gave me gratis on a, web, on a radio station. I knocked on his door on a Sunday night. I saw he had a yunkin sign in his yard, and I gave him one of mine. But it's all about that extra kick to get your more messaging, you know, either whether it's a sign or more mailers, you know, maybe to help pay for campaign staff to get you, you know, because believe me, those guys don't work on uh, just oxygen alone. You got people knocking on doors that pizza needs to come from somewhere. So that all adds up, you know, so it all helps out. Uh, we've got a question again from the audience. I think everyone understands that the best form of uh, communication is door to door, uh, if it's possible, ideally the candidate themselves. Um, what level of office should the candidate spend less time on door to door? Obviously running for lieutenant governor, it would not be very effective. So where's that breaking point when the candidate should utilize other forms of communication other than door to door? So, so the question is, when is it impractical? At what level of, of candidacy is it impractical for a candidate to spend a significant amount of his or her time at the door? And this question is for anyone. Ron, do you want to kick things off? Sure. Um, I think it, it depends on the size of the district and what other things the candidate should, could be doing. If you're running for governor, you've got nothing else to do but go door to door, you've got a problem. There should be plenty of other things that you're doing, not going door to door. However, you should still go to Saturday walk events and so on and provide encouragement for the volunteers who are going out and walking for you. So I'd say that in, in, in every statewide campaign, door to door contact should be a part of a voter contact plan. And, and it's just like a sliding scale. If you're running for city council, then it probably makes sense for the candidate to be out walking districts, uh, going door to door all the time. Assuming that you live in an area where going door, door, going door to door is rational. If you live in San Francisco, then going door to door is gonna be very difficult because everyone lives in a, in a building, right? And so you have to use different means of reaching people in person. And you might do small events. You might have to, in every apartment or condominium building, you might look to identify a volunteer who will do an event for people in the building, inviting them to come in, and then you're invited. And that is another means of in-person contact. Similarly, if you live in a rural area, it doesn't make a lot of sense where I live to go door to door because the driveways are like a quarter mile long and the homes are so far apart. It just doesn't make sense there. Uh, but I can do small events where people are organizing their neighbors, doing a neighborhood coffee. I know a candidate, Rob McCoy, who was running for state assembly in Ventura County, California, uh, when I was running for lieutenant governor, he had a person full-time volunteer on his campaign, and all they were doing was organizing neighborhood coffees four days a week, Monday through Thursday. Uh, and so every night from six to eight, he was at a neighborhood coffee, 10, 20, 30 people at a time. To, to build on Ron's point, there's an opportunity cost for a candidate to go door to door. I think most campaigns should have a door to door component, uh, even at the presidential level. Uh, People go door to door for Donald Trump or for Joe Biden, but they're volunteers. They're not the candidate. 
there's an opportunity cost. If, if, if you are breaking your time up into blocks of, say, three hours, there's a morning block of three hours, an afternoon block of three hours, and an evening block of three hours, and you, how many days till the election, you have a finite number of blocks of time. And so the question then is, what do you use those blocks of time to do? How many doors could you knock on in three hours? 200? How many donors could you call in three hours, and how much money could you raise? If you could raise $20,000 in three hours, how many people could that pay for a mailing to? Well, that might pay for 40,000 people to get your piece of mailer. So the question's a good one because you mentioned that, it, that the best is door-to-door. -door. The more personal your voter contact, the better. So door-to-door is the best. And then telephones are better than mail. And TV slides in there because it's personal because it's in your living room but it's not that personal because it's not someone you know. The more personal, the better. It's just a trade-off. So is it more personal if the candidate is at the door or an enthusiastic volunteer who lives down the street is at the door? The candidate's probably better, but you've got to make some choices on priorities. And so uh, I have seen in congressional campaigns people going door to door. In primaries, if you can get a list of the people who are voting in the primaries, or if it's a party convention, and you can get a list of the people, you can go door to door to those 400 people if they're gonna nominate who's the nominee gonna be. One final point, if you're going door to door and it's a tactic and a technique to show that you're hardworking, it reinforces your message of being a hardworking candidate, it could be an effective technique, even if you may not be knocking on enough doors to make a difference in the door knocking, you're making a difference in the perception of you as a hard worker. So there's that component to it also. And, and I would add uh, to both Ron and Steve, especially if you're running for congressional or senate or even statewide office, um, to, to try to obtain media attention when you're going door to door. So imagine the number of media markets in California or Texas or, or here in Virginia and identify friendly media that will then cover uh, you know, you taking seriously this, this grassroots campaign going door-to-door. -door. Bill, is there, is there anything you want to add in door-to-door uh, -door communication? Yeah, I was thinking with the, the, the limitations and the advantages of, of going door-to-door -door work for both candidates, too. So if you live in an area like Ron was mentioning, like very rural, um, your opponent has the same problems that you have. Right, so you try to maximize your time. I personally like door-to-door -door campaigning. Um, you know, but I live in a, you know an area that most of the districts are are walkable, where you can just go knock on a door and in a more traditional subdivision. Um, and I would encourage candidates to do that. If you're running for 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 Congress, there are areas in the district where you can't. Um, so it really depends on, like like Ron mentioned, the, the geographics. I think is a, a huge huge factor and the size of the district. I had a candidate uh, that I managed, a, a state senate candidate campaign a number of years ago, and the only problem we had, he, he loved going door to door and could get, uh, could flip a vote in, in a matter of minutes. The only problem that we had to watch out for was frequently voters would in, invite him into their home and he would take them up on it. And so volunteers would go knocking on doors in a neighborhood and two or three hours would pass by and, and my candidate would be watching football on Sunday with a, with a constituent. And so that is something that you don't want to spend a lot of your time doing, but if you are a candidate, uh, you should spend some time. And you, real quick, you made a good point because there are also candidates that you don't want going door to door yep. for the opposite reason. So they can lose votes. So you know, it's all, it all depends on the situation.
So we have a question from Christina and she's asking about, um, this is geared towards anyone, um, but what are some of the qualities um, of a successful candidate specifically for um, school board or smaller races um, in their in their states? So what are some of those qualities that um, they could either garner or find in some of their friends to say, hey, go run for school board? So if I could, uh, if I could jump in as the moderator, what I've found in Arlington, where, where I live and vote, is uh, there's a very robust civic infrastructure. And so what do voters in Arlington want? They want someone who's engaged in local politics. So they're a member of their civic association or they have kids in the school system. You know, we had a, a gentleman who ran as an independent in 2014 for county board who was a member of his civic association. He'd been involved in the civic infrastructure for 30 years uh, and he had built up his own constituency beyond a, a partisan nature, especially in Arlington where 83% of voters vote, voted for Joe Biden in, in 2020. Uh, and he was able to overcome uh, considerations, partisan considerations that would prevent Democrats or progressives from voting for him. And so one of the things that we noticed was the, the serious nature. He knew the local issues. He had allies across the political spectrum. And he had built up his own personal constituency and infrastructure. Uh, Steve, did you want to add? Just again, repeating what we had said earlier, really, uh, a good name in the community is really important. And uh, it doesn't have to be someone uh, who's... Uh, if you're running for Congress, uh, a federal office, you don't have to have, you know, blockaded abortion clinics or anything. You just, uh, it's as simple as getting involved in, in your school board um, or um, in, in local things. People want to know that you've, you, you are involved and that you care. Uh, we like to, you know, quote the famous saying, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And, and caring is a big factor of this. Well, how do you prove that you care? You prove that you care by having done things that show you care. Anyone can say anything when they run for office. People want to look to the evidence. And the evidence is the activities that you've engaged in over a period of time. And, and, and also building the infrastructure. As Ron mentioned, there's not a pot of money that the party is just going to give you if you're the nominee of your party. That's why you need to build your own infrastructure of volunteers and donors without telling them, I'm running for governor in six years, I want you to be a donor in six years. You're, just, you're involved in the community, they're donating to other things, and over time you'll build your, your infrastructure. Let me add something to that, and, uh, and I speak as a former high school trustee and as a, as a local party chairman. What, what to me provides nuclear strength to a school board candidate is if, number one, they, they clearly are running for the benefit of the students, right? But everybody, everybody can say that. It's for the kids, it's for the kids. We've heard that all before. But they have to take it a step further. And if they can then articulate three problems in the specific schools they are looking to represent, three problems, three solutions, and three benefits, that shows you really know your stuff. If a school board candidate steps forward and says, I'm running for school board because it's for the kids and uh, vote for me. That is, we've all heard that before and you're gonna get tuned out. If on the other hand you say, we have, to, we have a serious problem in our school district that I wanna help to solve. Let me tell you what they are. Number one, our school district dropout rate is 12.2%. The state average is 8%. That means that, that, means that every year, there are 40 or 50 students who we are losing every year uh, because they're dropping out of school. 
And that means that we know that statistically, once someone drops out of school, they're gonna have a much more difficult challenge for the rest of their lives. And the people who are in the school board right now don't have a solution to this problem. Here's my solution. And then they walk through it. Secondly, our uh, college admission rate at, our, at this particular high school is, uh, you know, is this. And, uh, and that means that we're not prepared, and specifically they're not getting into college because our math program in this particular high school is a real problem and we have to address that. And I wanna make sure we have a new superintendent who's gonna prioritize solving this problem so that we have a higher college admission rate, that we cut that, that dropout rate down and we make sure that every child who is attending our local high school gets the world-class education that not only they deserve, but the taxpayers are already paying for. You see what I'm doing? It adds enormous amounts of credibility if a school board candidate can go beyond the platitudes and articulate specific problems and in a calm and rational way, articulate problem, solution, benefit for each of those. That makes a candidate noteworthy and much stronger. You're seeing that play out on the national level. If you've seen uh, Kevin McCarthy recently on TV, he's talking about not just what we oppose or what he opposes, but what he plans to do. If I am fortunate enough to become the speaker, we're going to pass a student bill of rights. We're going to pass, and he has three or four bullet points, and for more information, go to our website. So have plans. Uh, the, the voters will likely not go to the website and look at all the details, but they want to know that you have a plan. Um, uh, recently, uh, there was a gentleman who ran for city council uh, in uh, Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. And uh, I met with him, and he for a few hours and he told me about his campaign and uh, he mentioned he's the only one that has a plan for anything. You go to my website, he goes, I have plans for all this stuff. None of the other candidates have any plans. I said, well, that's great, but you're not going to drive traffic to your website uh, without it costing you a lot of money, but use the fact that you're the only one with a plan. So he put on his yard signs, his name, and then the tagline, a plan for the future. No one else had anything on their, their, their yard signs except names. It's a blur. But he had a plan for the future. People said, well, this is the only guy with a plan. He was elected. He's on the city council now. So sometimes it's that simple. So to Ron's point, be for something and have a plan to do something and not just be against something. I don't want to say you can't win simply being against stuff, because I guess you can. We actually, but it's not, it's not the best thing to be. People want to know, okay, you're against that, now what are you for? We, we polled that once, having a plan, uh -huh. right? Do, would you, you know, feel more positive or negative for this particular candidate if they had a plan to do X? And they, the fact that they had a plan rated very high. So people liked the concept of having a plan. At the time, we didn't have a plan. We had to develop one, but, but we did. <laughs> but you don't have to go full Mitt Romney on people and say, I have a 57-point plan, and then itemize all. I mean, he, he had it memorized. Ours this guy was amazing. Three. Yeah, three. Well, and, and, and Terry McAuliffe in Virginia in 2021 told everyone a number of times he had a 140-page plan uh, for, for the voters and for the future of Virginia. And I think this is a great place to pause the conversation for, for, um, for, for now. Thank you so much for joining us and thank you for the great questions here uh, among the audience. And thanks to Ron, Steve, Bill, and Matt for, uh, for sharing their experience. Thank you so much. This wraps up another episode of the podcast. The Leadership Institute is a nonprofit, nonpartisan foundation dedicated to giving conservatives the tools they need to fight and win in the public policy arena. 
If you'd like to support our work, you can make a tax-deductible contribution online at leadershipinstitute.org slash donate. I'm your host, Ron Nearing. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.